because tonight will most likely be um, the last time I stand before you as an intern for Lakeview Baptist Church. Uh, I'm getting fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin said I've had enough, and so uh, yeah, I'm going to fire Kevin. You know, so Sophie's getting fired too. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, but um, two weeks from now, uh, all of you will be finishing up your uh, final exams and then heading off to wherever you'll be for the summer. And when you get back, uh, I will not be here. Uh, and I think this has been a reality that has been. Uh, particularly challenging for me to just wrestle with and, and think through for a while now. And, and, you know, honestly, probably Sophie, too, if I may speak on her behalf, uh, just in a similar situation. And so I want to say at the offset here, uh, since I'm not sure that I have another chance to say it, but um, please know that uh, these past two years have been one of the greatest privileges of uh, my life uh, to this point, uh, and all of you have been um, yeah, all of you have taught me so much. You've been such a blessing to me. And um, there are many of you that I have known since your freshman year. Uh, the Lord has graced me with the gift of um, watching you grow in your love for Him. And I've watched you worship, and I've watched you pray, and watched you disciple, and watched disciples turn into disciple makers, and, and watched you wrestle with the Lord, and um, come out stronger on the other side because of it. And um, I just, yeah, I just want to say that, that you all have been such a blessing to me, uh, and I do mean that. And um, and guys, the the reality is that when you get back from the summer, um, after you, after you leave and and everything, when you get back, things are probably going to look a little different. Um, but my challenge for all of you is to let this be an opportunity uh, to step up and to set an example uh, for the upcoming freshman class to follow. Um, be an example, be, like, devote yourself to this ministry, uh, to one another, to this church family, to your church body, like, this ministry um, needs you, this ministry wants you, and, and every single one of you are too good to not lead. Like, hear me say that, like, like the Lord is, has gifted so many of you in such a variety of ways, and, um, and to echo what Paul said in, in Romans 12, like, use these gifts that the Lord has given you, like, they are they are the very evidence of, of God's bestowed mercy upon you. And so, so please, don't waste, please don't waste them. Kevin's going to need your help. Uh, whoever replaces Sophie is going to need your help. Um, and so please be faithful. Be consistent. Um, rising seniors, like, don't use this as an opportunity to slack off and, and withdraw from the college ministry. Use this as an opportunity to, to plug in, to lean in, and, and invest in the lives of the, of the upcoming freshmen of and 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 yeah, just like set an example for the standard of holiness that that you've seen here, um, that you've seen in this church, um, and I, I've been here for six years now, which is actually longer than uh, most of the people on staff now. I, I counted the other day, so it's kind of funny. But um, all that say is that if I could if I could go back to freshman year and and redo it. I would. I, I did not take advantage of the opportunities that I had to invest in this church and in this body um, like, like all of you have now. And um, it, it, it would be very easy for me to look back and, and regret that. Um, and, and it's certainly the, the temptation. So um, please hear what I'm saying. And, and just, yeah, man, like, like plant your roots here. 
Uh, let, let your life revolve around this place because it is, it is such a gift from the Lord. And Lakeview is such a special place, and, and he is doing such an evident work here. Um, but now to switch gears a little bit and actually talk about what we're talking about. Uh, my goal to, tonight is to really highlight how, <clears throat> how silence and solitude is a means of grace and, and kind of explain like why this has been the fuel behind everything that I do and, and how the Holy Spirit has used this to, um, to renew my heart to the glories of God time and time again. And so if you haven't already, um, go ahead and find your place in Psalm 62. As you're flipping, in this psalm, uh, David is, is running from calamity to, and, and chaos, and he's in the midst of a crisis. He's being attacked. He's being persecuted. And, and, and here there are people actively trying to take his life. And instead of trying to fight and rally up others to come to his aid, he just simply turns to the Lord. And so our sole verse for the night, um, verse 1, that's all we're looking at. It reads, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Let's pray. Father God, what a gift it is to, to know you. What a gift it is to know that, that from you comes our salvation, that, that we are rescued from um, all life's burdens, um, all plagues, all sins, that we will one day uh, see you in your fullness, that we will one day know Christ who, with, like, of whom we have we've tried to model our lives around. Like we, will, we will know our Savior. We will be in his presence with a great multitude just singing, holy, holy, holy are you. Father, I, I pray that you would use this time to soften our hearts to yourself, that you would open our eyes, you would open our ears, that we would see and, and, and just come away knowing the ways that, that we can also um, grow and, and, and nurture our heart for you, that we might abide in the Spirit as the Spirit abides in us. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that you would soften hearts that the teaching would be clear, that it would be easily understood. But I pray that we might use what we learn here tonight uh, to share with someone else. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, uh, this verse, whether you know it or not, is, is really packed with some, some great stuff. But what I wanted to do instead of kind of exegeting the text or, or systematically walking through it, uh, is to rather kind of use this as like the foundation for our study. So this is kind of where I want us to set our roots because I think this single verse effectively communicates all that we need to know about the significance of silence and solitude as a means of grace. Uh, so with that said, uh, track with me. So almost everywhere we see the themes of silence and solitude, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it is either in the context of, of suffering or in the context of, of, of the Lord's sustenance, the Lord providing sustenance. And, and <clears throat> so an example of this, not in Psalm 62, would be like Lamentations 3, where we see Jeremiah, um, he, he is mourning Israel's 
uh, or he's, he's mourning uh, Israel's captivity by Babylon, and he is reminded of the Lord's promise to save his people. And in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 3, he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And so if, you're, if, you're, if that makes sense, like silence, and I'll explain more on this in a bit, is, is tied to remembering the Lord's salvation in a time, of, in a time where it, it's just desperately needed and also acts as a source of comforting, uh, of com- well, excuse me, of comfort for those who are suffering. But for sustenance, we could cite examples of Jesus in Mark 1, uh, uh, verse 35. Jesus rose very early in the morning to uh, go to a desolate place, and there he prayed, and then upon his return went throughout all of Galilee preaching and casting out demons. And so he, he, he did this to, um, to be with the Father, to prepare his heart, to prepare himself before he goes uh, out into his ministry. Or Paul, who in Galatians 1, when the Lord calls him to, uh, to the ministry, he didn't seek the counsel of others. He didn't go immediately to the apostles, but instead he went to Arabia, presumably alone, for three years to contemplate his calling. And, and through this time, the Lord was preparing him for the calling that he had given Paul. So spiritual sustenance. And I think both of these themes are present here in, the, in this verse. And even more so, I, I think what this verse does is, is three things. First, I think in it, David is reminded of his salvation from sin. I think David is reminded of his salvation from his situation. But I also think his silence is a conduit for his spiritual sustenance or, or, or the demonstration of his reliance on the Lord to provide for him, just very simply, and I'll say more on that in a minute. Also, I really hope that y'all are appreciating my alliteration here, because I'm kind of on it tonight. Because our first point, our first point, and our second point would all be S's. There's six words. So first point, silence, solitude, and suffering. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I've been working on it. Uh, So the first thing that I want to highlight here, silence, solitude, and suffering, is that in the midst of his afflictions, like in, in the midst of his very real suffering, David uh, pauses from his running, from the hiding, uh, and, and is not focusing on those who wish to take his life or how he can take matters into his own hands. And instead, he just looks to the Lord. He says, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. So just picture that. You know, like David alone, literally running for his life, without friend, without food, probably just sitting in the dimming light of a cave, and he forces his mind to utter these words, for God alone my soul waits, from him comes my salvation. What's the significance of this? Well, I think that here, his silence and solitude, the quieting of his mind, the silencing of his anxiety, and his focus on the Lord forces him to remember uh, a very paramount truth, a very important truth. Being the only one who can save him is the only one who has already saved him. Right? Like, what does verse 2 say uh, of this chapter? He says, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. In essence, God has used this time of silence in his suffering to remind him of the salvation that he is offering right here and right now, and and the salvation that he is offering to save David from even the situation that he's in. 
And from this, what I think David is able to see is that all he has in this moment is all that he actually needs. Like the, like the Lord is, is, is everything that he needs. And guys, tonight, like my goal is not to try to teach you some groundbreaking new strategy to um, read the Bible or, or to drop some theological heavyweight idea or whatever. I, and really, we're not even going to be walking through a passage. Like, what, what I want is for us to just really go back to the basics. Uh, because I, I think that sometimes in our suffering, no matter how severe, uh, I think it occasionally causes us to lose sight of the bigger picture. You know, I, And instead of taking our needs to the Lord, uh, we seek to distract ourselves. Um, we, we will find something or, or run to anything other than to, to just simply sit in the silence and meditate on God's word and allow him to meet us there. So what I mean by this is that like when things start to go wrong or, or uh, when, when something isn't going our way, our immediate response typically is to take matters into our own hands. Like, like we, we try our best to become the managers of our own lives, and it's typical fight or flight, right? Like, like I'm in control, I'm sovereign, I can handle it. And, so it, it and, and, and this is just kind of the mindset that we enter in and the mindset that we find ourselves in until we're in a position where we literally can't fix it. Like something happens that really shakes us up or alters our lives, whether that is the death of a loved one or a big life transition or failing grades, and what do we do? We panic, we stress, we get anxious, and then we mourn the disruption of, of our normal, comfortable rhythms. Or worse yet, like we try to cope with our mourning or our stress and anxiety by distracting ourselves and, and, and just run to anything but to the Lord to block out reality. Seriously, like I, I want, I want you all to think about that. Like how often is this true? How often is this true of our lives? For me, it's very often. And the danger in this is that in so doing, we are living our lives as those without hope, without the hope of the gospel. Like when, when we do this, that's what we're modeling. Like when we try to numb our suffering by distractions or try to handle it ourselves, whatever that means, what we are doing is forsaking our identity as children of a sovereign God. And, and, and we're essentially saying, Father, I do not believe that you're good enough to give me what I need in this moment. Like, your salvation means nothing to me. Like, I do not trust you right now. I don't want you right now. I want this thing that forces me to not deal with it. That's what we're doing. And, and, and I feel like David here is, is just simply like, no, like, like, this suffering will not distract me from the promises of God. Like, these afflictions may cost me my life, but, but they will not cost me my soul. And instead of, instead of running to something that can take my mind off of this, he's like, Father, I seek you. For God alone, my soul waits. And you know, I, I'm willing to bet that some of you read this verse and, and reflect on your own experiences and shudder. You get uncomfortable. Have you considered why? Tony Rinke, an author of 12 Ways Your Phone Has Changed You, he writes, says, for most of us, to be without the constant availability of distraction is like solitary confinement. It is a punishment to be most dreaded. 
He says, although we have a thousand reasons to be sobered by our self-reflection, we seek amusements. And all of this is redirecting us from our greatest needs and realities. He says, we run away like conscientious little bugs, like scared ravishes, dancing attendants on our machines, our slaves, our masters. He says, we're just clicking and scrolling and liking and sharing anything. He says, we think we want peace and silence and freedom and leisure, but deep down we know that this would be unendurable to us. In fact, if we want to complex, he says, in fact, we want to complexify our lives. We don't have to, we want to. We want to be hurried and hassled and busy. Just unconsciously, we want the very thing we complain about. For if we had leisure, he says, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the gaping hole in our hearts is so great and we'd be terrified because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. And in our distractions, we find a welcome escape from our truest, rawest, and most honest self-perceptions. So I think it's pretty evident that uh, we all have an addiction to distractions. I, I read this, and I'm like, he's talking about me. Like he, he wrote this knowing, like, Riley Hambrick. And, and in reflecting on it, I just think it's a hard thing for sinners to sit in silence when we realize we've been running from who we really are and from a God who really knows us. Like, who knows our sins, who knows our struggles, when we just want so perfectly to live in, 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 in our, you know, in our own controlled environment. But not David. His soul is waiting for God. And he has the wisdom to see that he can't get himself out of the mess that he's in. Like his hope is in the Lord. And, and I'll get personal and, and I'll confess, uh, I, more than anyone, will be the first uh, to do anything to, detri- uh, to distract myself when, um, when I'm struggling. Like I will do anything to make myself busy. And when I'm hit with something that I can't control, I, I really don't handle it well. Uh, I will get super anxious. I, I can't eat. I can't sleep. Uh, and I will run myself dry looking for solutions when deep down I know that the Lord is pers- has purposely um, taken all of the solutions that I can find or hidden them from me. And I'll do this until I'm at my wit's end, uh, which lasts a lot longer than it should because I'm stubborn. Um, but I'll, I'll do this until my only option is just to seek the Lord. And through it, like, at some point come to grips with the fact that, that I really need to repent and reorient my desires and rest in who he says he is. Um, the reality of the fact is that I can only do the things that he, himself, uh, that he himself gives me the grace to do. And every single time I think that I've gotten myself into a place where I can like, do this whole life thing really good, uh, man, he will humble me without a moment's notice. And, and honestly, praise the Lord for that. Like, seriously. Because what this does is it reminds me that I am not God, that I am not in control. And he is most glorified in my life when I live like that, when I live as if he is in control and I'm not. Because like my submission and the bending of my will to his in the midst of my worst days is like an internal confession to the truth that I externally claim to believe, right? The truth being that he is truly the father of mercies and he is truly the God of all comfort. And and I wish, as I wish I could stand here in confidence and tell you that this is an easy practice, but the reality is 
And when the Lord allows me to walk through things that reveal my own finitude, rarely, rarely is yielding my first response. And rarely is submitting to Him and, and just waiting, like waiting on the Lord, the first thing that I do. Nine times out of ten, like I will really be going through it until He just finally forces me uh, to realize that I just need to, to get alone with Him and shut up. I need to stop worrying and, 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 and just let Him handle it. You know, like, like I, am, I am certainly no expert on suffering. I don't want to be. I'm not cool. I, I'm cool with not being that. Uh, but what I do know for certain is that whether it is anxiety or whether it is death, with whom I am also well, uh, well acquainted, unfortunately, uh, is that when you meditate on your place before the Lord, and as you consider the hope that is found in your salvation, like, like the practical implications of this, you will realize that, that though the situation the Lord has placed you in is not easy, it is also not eternal. Or that though the, the sin and guilt that may characterize your life seems fatal, if you are in Christ, is not final. And so what I want us to realize is that David's prayers aren't just these theologically heavy things that, that we should study and read through, but like these are also just deeply, deeply personal revelations for him. And what he realized in God we have seen fulfilled in Christ. Like, namely, the reality of, of John 16, which says, Jesus says, For I have seen these things that, um, that you, uh, I have seen, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulations that take heart, for I have overcome the world. And that should be a comfort for us. And so, how is... How is silence and solitude a means of grace for those in suffering? My answer would be that silence and solitude allows you to see everything in its proper perspective. Right? Like, our God makes big things seem very small. And only when we take a step back from the chaos and distractions are we able to remember that our identity is no longer in Adam. It is now and forever will be sealed in Christ. And as humble slaves to a righteous master, we submit to his lordship, remembering that he calls us to place our faith in him for a reason. What is that reason? Because our lives are no longer our own, right? Like we are the blood-bought sons and daughters of a good, good father who will not ever let the powers of hell nor the schemes of man ever take what is his. That's our encouragement. Like we are in the one who has defeated death. And that means that nothing, nothing should stop us. But it is through this practice of, of just sitting in silence and waiting on the Lord and considering all of these things. Like it is only through waiting and, and, and doing all of this that that we can actually join in saying with Paul that, that all of our afflictions are momentary in life for they are preparing for us an internal weight of glory. And so, silence, solitude, and suffering reminds David of his salvation from sin and his salvation from his situation. Second point, silence, solitude, and sustenance. Now, 
I do want to shift here ever so slightly because I think it's important that we not just look at silence and solitude as only this thing that is for people who are uh, really going through it. Uh, I, I, I truly think that this is something that I would encourage every single one of you to try to incorporate into your, your daily or, or even weekly routines. Uh, and I say this because it, it really has been just such a, such a conduit for, for cultivating uh, my, my personal intimacy with the Lord. And so as we talk about means of grace uh, for our spiritual sustenance or, or something that has the potential to really enrich our spiritual lives, uh, I want you to consider this question. Is your walk with the Lord characterized by a daily reliance and by an absolute surrender, or is it just filled with a bunch of empty habits? And the reason I ask this is because early last week, me and uh, Kevin and Katie said, well, improper, Kevin, Katie, Seth, and I yeah, uh, were in Atlanta for a conference, which was uh, specifically just for college ministries. Pretty fun. We went with FBO's college staff. It was a good time. Uh, but in one of the little breakout sessions, the guy who was leading it said something that, he said a lot of things that I thought was interesting, but this one particular thing, he said, the most frightening thing about ministry is that it's something that you can learn to do. And I was like, well, frick, dude, Steve out here swinging, you know? Um, but as I was prepping for tonight, I kind of had this in the back of my mind, and I was like, well, you know, this really isn't just true of ministry, but this is also true of the entirety of the Christian life, uh, and, and in a way that isn't necessarily helpful. And, and let me explain what I mean. I, I, don't, I don't know if, if any of you know this or not, but there is, and I think, I think this is awesome. I think it's so cool, but there's actually a woman in our choir who uh, is a professing Muslim. And, and she's here every Sunday. She's singing just as loud as the rest of us. The difference is that while she's singing the gospel and while she's singing about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, she, she does so without ever actually realizing the full weight of the words that she's singing or the truth that they are communicating. You know, like essentially her ears are deaf to her own words. But from the outside... Like, you'd be led to believe that she's a believer. Why? Because she's here every Sunday. She's involved in, in uh, the, the church. She, like, these are, these are things that are part of her, her normal routine. Um, these are things that she's implemented into her schedule. And in a way, I, I think that there's something in that here that we can relate to. You know, like, and, and here's the point I'm trying to make. How often are we doing things, like specifically Christian things, like worshiping or, or reading our Bibles or um, discipling. Uh, how often are we doing these things? And then you kind of realize that like, your own heart has kind of grown numb to the significance of, of who you're worshiping or who you're reading about or who you're telling someone else about. You see what I'm saying? Like, like you're doing all these things, and, and the truth of the gospel is coming out of your mouth, but the significance of all this is being done uh, with hearts that have grown stagnant and lukewarm toward the Lord. It's been a case for me. Or, or another example, like when you are <laughs> sitting down with a person you're meeting with, whether a disciple or a disciple, or how often does the conversation go something like this? Uh, how should we? Oh, you know, it's good. Um, got a little stressed out yesterday. Struggled a little bit. Like, oh, yeah, um, okay. Uh, what's the Lord been teaching you? Ah, uh, you know, same old, 
Same old stuff, you know. Okay, um, great. How can I be praying for you? Oh, you know, school's a lot, you know. <laughs> I got this test coming up, whatever. <laughs> Guys, if, if this was what, what Paul and Timothy's relationship looked like, then the Christian, li- the, the Christian faith would be in shambles, you know. <laughs> and, and though there's not necessarily anything wrong with, with a conversation like this, it doesn't exactly describe the heart of someone who is abounding in reverence for the Lord and hungry for growing in their Christ-likeness. That's the simple reality of it. I know it sounds hard. But I think one of the most strategic and most subtle and most powerful tactics that Satan uses to afflict the church today is comfortable Christians. Those, myself included, who live their daily lives in such abundance and with such ease that we quickly, yet subconsciously, scoot Jesus off to the sidelines every single morning because all the privileges and perks and comforts that we have have trained us to become independent consumers rather than needy servants. And, and we most naturally believe, like every day, that our needs are met. Like I can... I can Wake up in the morning, walk to the kitchen, and see that I have food. Or I can go get gas knowing that I have money in my wallet. You know, like our lives are secure. Our needs are met. And, and everything is great when in reality, like it is as if these things that are provided to us as a, as a grace from the Lord. Like these are good things that we should give thanks to the Lord for. But it, it's almost as if these things are actually being used by the enemy as a lullaby to, to sing our spiritual lives to sleep. You know? And what I want us to see here is that the best exemplars of the Christian life were those who were desperately aware of their dependence upon the, uh, upon the Lord, like of their need for Him. Like those who cry out to the Lord and trusted that he would provide for them and that he would sustain them to the point of selling all their possessions to giving away every single dime they had to just simply demonstrate that he can and will provide and sustain even when the world says that he will not or that he cannot. Or like, or like another example, David himself who was so aware of the Lord's ability to sustain him that he could even face a giant with but a single rock. You know? Do we live in that kind of trust in the Lord? Or, or, or that kind of, just like, well, I need you for my very breath. How often do we do that? How often do we thank him for, for the resources that we have? How often do we confess that without these God-given resources that we, would, that we had nothing? And so the point I'm trying to make here is that silence and solitude also serves to remind us of our own creaturely state and it humbles us to see the endless immensities of God's everlasting glory. And not only that, but like verse 8 of this chapter, after meditating... For God alone, from him comes my salvation. After doing this, like this even fuels David to to be even evangelistic in a sense. Like verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. 
pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge. And so like not only does, does sitting in silence before the Lord reveal our needs before him, but it also reveals uh, other people's needs for himself too. And like that should light a fire for us to go and tell. Like, like we, should, we should be eager to go out on Thursdays or eager to go out across campus and, and like fill this room. You know? And if not at Lakeview, then like some other like Bible-believing church. Because like when we see how totally and utterly depraved we are apart from the grace of Jesus Christ and the mercies of God. How can we not say to all people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. I know this point um, is, is true, um, that, that sitting alone with the Lord allows us to see our needs because I am all too well familiar uh, with the torment of, of a stagnant heart. Like, like if the enemy is afflicting me in any way, it is certainly through the ease of, of falling into apathy with the Lord. Like it is so easy for me to be there, um, and for long periods too. Like I could read the entire book of Psalms and and for days just like study and look at it and, and read and read and read. And the only like emotional response that I'd have to them would be frustration because I don't have the same personal intimacy with the Lord that David does, you know? Like to simply read this and to know that he is encouraging himself by saying, for God alone, my soul waits. And like this is both worshipful and, and, and like his sign of humility is just insane to me. And so if you're like sitting here wondering like, yeah, like how did I get, get that like deep and, and, and rich and, and personal love for the Lord like David? Here's your answer. Sit in silence before him and consider yourself in light of his word. In the book, The Still Hour, Austin Phelps wrote, he says, It has been said that no great work in literature or in science was ever wrought by a man who did not love solitude. He says, we may lay it down as an elemental principle of religion that no large growth in holiness has ever been gained by one who did not take time to often be alone with God. So, as I try to land the plane here, silence and solitude acts as a conduit for the Lord's grace because it allows you and us, it allows all of us to see the Lord for who He, for who he is and for who He has revealed Himself to be, and it forces us to just, like, finally, like, to take our eyes off ourselves. Like, in our busyness, we can easily think that we are righteous enough, or that we are wise enough, or strong enough, because we're doing enough Christian things. We're here on church on a Wednesday, and, and on church on an early Sunday morning, and, and we sing, and we worship, and whatever. Like, it, it, it's easy for us to, to kind of think that we're, we're okay, you know, without ever actually, like, pausing to consider whether or not, whether or not, like, the Lord still actually, like, whether or not our, our hearts yearn for God. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, when everything else is removed, are you longing for, for the things, or are you longing for God himself? 
I'll recall uh, another quote from a, a different theologian. He says, We might call a man righteous because he meets the standards of righteousness. We might call a man wise because he conforms to the patterns of wisdom. That God is the standard and he is the pattern. He is not merely righteous. He is righteousness. He is not merely wisdom. He is wisdom itself. And so everything we think we are or everything that we think we might be, God already is and he has been. And by his own nature, he is like the very embodiment thereof. And, and he does so in a perfect way, in a perfected way. And so like when David says here, like when, when David says what he has said here, he can confess that, that like his salvation comes from the Lord or that the Lord is his rock and his refuge. Because by being silent before him, he's able to see that his own strength pales in comparison to God, you know? Like, like, because he is all-sufficient, then he is sufficient for me. Because he has no needs, he can meet mine, and he will meet mine. And so know that, like, God's fullness will never be revealed to you if you do not yet know how you may be filled by him. And, and you will never, as you will never hear him speak if you're unwilling to simply wait in silence and shut up and listen. There have been so many times that I have um, gone to the Lord in discernment. Um, for six years I've done that over the same question. You know, what, what's next? Um, I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, I'm about to make a really, really big life decision and I have not devoted any time to thinking about the Lord. I've tried and, and yeah, I've, I've made a point of prayer, but I haven't actually just devoted like a, a couple hours to just, to just this one thing. Like, oh, because I, I got it, you know, YOLO, whatever, I'll be fine. That's, that's just not a good practice. Like if, if we are calling him Father, and if we are addressing him as Lord, And we should bring him in on the decisions that we're making. We should treat him as a father. And we should submit to him as Lord. So I'll part with these final words from Jonathan Edwards. He says, it's beautiful. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. He is the enjoyment, or he says, the enjoyment of him is our proper happiness and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here, better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of, of any or all earthly friends. He says, these are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So, I, uh, I think it is only fitting, actually, uh, to not do what I like to do, which is uh, encouraging you all to break up into groups, but 
Um, I would encourage you now, and I would encourage you again sometime this week to sit in silence. Maybe not solitude, because there's, you know, a lot of us here. It would be impossible. Um, But to just sit in silence and just ask the Lord to, to stir up your affections for Himself. Ask Him to, to guide your thoughts. Meditate on His Word. If you want, pray over this psalm, if you, if you like. Um, but just take a few minutes to do that.